Welcome to Beyond the Show, the podcast series that takes the spirit of Cannabis Conference and brings it to the airwaves. My name is Eric Sandy, and I'm the digital editor of Cannabis Conference and Cannabis Business Times. This week, we thought we'd turn to a timely news hook, the recall election in California, which Governor Gavin Newsom beat by a wide margin. This is important, partially because the California governor presides over the largest adult-use cannabis market in the world, but also because there's a host of problems facing licensed operators in that state. Five years after voters approved Prop 64, there's still a lot of work to do to level the playing field, broaden access to safe cannabis products, and ensure a robust marketplace for everyone interested in making this industry a success. Associate Editor Tony Lang reported on the election, and he spoke with Attorney Jared Schwass of the Schwass Law Firm in Mendocino County ahead of the vote. You can find Tony's piece on CannabisBusinessTimes.com. The day after the election, I followed up with Jared to dig into his Emerald Triangle roots and to learn more about what, if anything, the validation of Gavin Newsom means for California cannabis business owners. There's a lot to unpack. It's California, it's cannabis, and it's election season. So please enjoy my conversation with Jared Schwass. Well, Jared, thanks so much for joining the show. Very glad to have you here, especially uh, in a busy week such as this out in California. Um, Before getting into some of the more uh, personal details regarding uh, your work and and your podcast, of course, uh, I did want to touch on the election this week. Uh, Of course, the, the recall election of Governor Gavin Newsom out in California. Uh, the, the failed recall, I guess I should say at this point, now that we've seen the results. Um, can you sort of just talk about that, maybe place that in the context of the cannabis industry? Obviously, the governor is touching on all sorts of political uh, winds that are flowing in, in California, and the recall has a lot of political context to it that might not completely include cannabis. But in the cannabis space, why was this an important thing to be monitoring? Yeah. And first, before I start, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure being here and a pleasure talking to you and meeting you for the first time as well. Uh, yeah, So the recall was important for the cannabis industry in the sense that uh, the Republicans were, were riding the wave of disgruntlement of Gavin Newsom in addition to his co- the COVID response, but also uh, disgruntled. There's a lot of... Uh, disgruntled individuals in the cannabis industry, and they want or desire Gavin Newsom to take additional action. Uh, And I feel like a lot of the blame for the cannabis regulatory rollout that occurred in 2017 is put on Gavin Newsom incorrectly. uh, When that was the previous governor signed the signed the passed the bill, uh, consolidated consolidated Prop 64 into 94. uh, And you know, Gavin Newsom is just trying to, he's playing catch up. I feel, in my opinion, he has expressed his willingness to make the needed changes. Uh, I understand that the cannabis industry feels like he's been moving too slow on it. I would agree that he has been moving too slow. The government's been moving too slow and making the needed changes. Uh, but I do understand, I do have empathy that, you know, this last year, a lot, you know, couldn't really expect much to happen through government except for uh, the COVID response. Um, and so I think it was important because I do believe we do have an ally in Gavin Newsom in, uh, in the state government. Um, and if, uh, and if the 
uh, recall was passed and Larry Elder was, I believe he was the, uh, the highest uh, percentage voter uh, uh, applicant. Um, he would have been basically governor. And he, he is, uh, he has stated that he wanted to tax and regulate cannabis, which is already overtaxed, which is already overregulated. And he said he wanted to uh, get rid of, uh, you know, he wanted to turn minor, minor possessions back into felonies or uh, something along those lines of that. He wanted to go back to the enforcement of war on drugs um, and start making these serious arrests for small minor possessions, um, which I don't think is what the California people want. I don't think that is the correct way to uh, try to fight the illicit market. I think you just increase the illicit market. You put, you know, uh, honest working people in, in, in the jail system. And I think it's just, we've, and we've seen that the war on drugs is not a successful way to enforce uh, drug policy. Yeah, and, and certainly it, it does sound like uh, within that world of California politics that Larry Elder is uh, going to be sticking around for a little while and still um, a force that will be voicing some of these concerns in one way or the other as we look to uh, future election cycles here. Um, just to sort of sit with Newsom for a minute, um, you know, we've done a lot of long form reporting on California and some of those issues that we continually return to in our pieces in Cannabis Business Times do revolve around, as you just mentioned, taxation and the illicit market and sort of the interplay between those two things. There's obviously a lot more going on, but what are some of those additional actions that the industry has been pushing from Newsom, uh, meaning uh, in what specific ways is he seen as falling short in the industry's eyes? Yeah, one, uh, as you mentioned, over taxation, tax, there needs to be tax breaks, especially for the entry levels, uh, especially at the beginning of the market. Uh, if you want to try to compete with the illicit market, the taxes are incredibly high, both at the state and local level. I think that I think the state needs to reconcile the fact that local governments are putting, you know, up to 10% or more tax, additional taxes on these, on these products. And, you know, thinking of a 15% excise tax on top of, so you're looking at a 25% tax in addition to uh, traditional sales tax and everything else. So, uh, you know, the, the tax is, is a big issue. Um, the regulation is a big issue, but I think outside of those, one major one that needs to happen is, uh, I don't, is the, uh, the local governments need to open up um, more retail spots and more retail licenses for the, the entire state. Right now, the entire state has under a thousand, I think it's uh, under 800, maybe, I believe I looked it up, and it's under 800 uh, storefront retails uh, licenses and under 900 or so uh, delivery only licenses. And so that's under 2000, um, retail licenses in total throughout the entire state. And that's significant. That's way too low for the, you know, and act. So access to those retailers is very difficult. It's very competitive. Um, and you have to also think that those retail, the licenses, uh, the way local governments have been issuing them is they've been giving priority to these big 
these big vertically integrated companies who they're not going to want a bunch of com competition uh, for for flour, for uh, concentrates, for their products that for to put on their shelves. And so, you're, if you're looking at these small growers, these small producers, they, they have a very difficult time getting into retail space because of the uh, scarcity of of the retail. So, if the state government could uh, enforce, could could basically open up uh, the retail market to to local producers and to the citizens who voted for uh, for Prop 64. Uh, I believe I was uh, Rob uh, Bonta, who uh, he he is a proponent of, you know, opening having the local cities and governments open it up. Um, and, you know, one one option that that could be uh, thrown out there is, you know, if there if there's a city or county that where the population voted to approve 64, then it you know, then it has to open up its doors and allow allow retail licenses. Um, a lot of the cities and governments, they, uh, they, you know, say they don't, it's extra cost to do all this, which it is. And the state doesn't really provide that cost. So the state should be providing cities and counties with funding to implement this program and hold, kind of hold their hands a little bit to get this going. Because right now it's, we're at a standstill with a lot of these local governments who are unwilling to move, you know, the not, not, not in my backyard movement. Um, they, you know, they want it, but they don't want it in their jurisdiction because there's a lot of, uh, there's still a lot of reefer madness, uh, you know, mindset that go, goes around in these local, these local governments. And so getting over that and opening up um, just, allowing small farmers to have access to the consumers would be huge for the entire market. Um, and I believe that's also a way that you could uh, fight the illicit market is by opening it up, opening up a lot more. Um, so I think that's a huge one. Yeah. And I, I definitely want to sort of um, steer this conversation toward those small growers. Uh, but first want to take a minute and just sort of ask you to place yourself in California a little bit. Um, you know, I know you're you're working on the, the California Cannabis Report podcast, which is off to a great start. It's been fun to follow along. And that sort of zero is zeroes in on the Emerald Triangle area. So could you just tell us a bit about yourself and your relationship to Emerald Triangle cannabis? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, so I'm born and raised in Mendocino County. Um, and I've I've had experiences in the can in the cannabis industry since since high school. Uh, I have friends that are growers, uh, friends that are, you know, that are in the cannabis industry. And I've always kept, you know, uh, that, that connection. Uh, and, and so that kind of, and so that relation, those relationships and that relationship kind of spurred me to get into uh, cannabis law specifically. Um, and so when I, so as I was starting, I was growing my practice, I was practicing at Fox Rothschild the national law firm helping these large MSOs con consolidate, uh, basically create big cannabis. And I've, and I noticed that there was that the small farmers in the animal triangle were kind of, were kind of being left behind, not thought of, and there wasn't really, uh, there wasn't really much voice uh, for them or people, you know, 
there are people that are doing great work up there that are fighting for them, you know, and I, I felt like I wanted to kind of, I wanted to go back and get back to my community and get back to the people uh, that I know that are so, such amazing people that they, that I, you know, I wanted to go back and learn their stories more intimately and, and try to create an outlets where I could introduce people to those people, to the growers, to their stories. And so people can learn about who produces the great bud out of California, you know, the outdoor, not organic, you can't say organic, but the outdoor regenerative grown uh, cannabis is the, is the best. If people say that California has the best cannabis, you, you know, you look, people say indoor, people love indoor, but you can grow indoor cannabis any the same anywhere. You, you know, it's, it's where you get to the terroir, the, the outdoor, where it, it, it takes the nature around it and the soil below it. That's where you get the good cannabis. And so I wanted to introduce that to other people because that's what I'm used to. That's what I've been, that's what I was, grew up on and, and using. So I wanted to introduce that to other people. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned terroir. It's, it's such a, a great word, especially within this space that we're, we're all operating in. Um, you know, and I, and I know that at least in the, the state's end of things, there has been ongoing talks for quite a while about, uh, I believe it's called either the California Appalachians Project or Appalachians Program. Uh, but in terms of, of the state putting some support behind whatever you'd like to call it, regional Appalachians or terroir or um, some sort of uh, even just marketing structure. Um, I don't know if, if you have an update as to where that is or, or how the state can play a role in, in boosting those stories that you're, that you're telling yourself as well. Yeah. And I think the Appalachia program is going to be hugely beneficial for the Emerald Triangle area. Um, and I, the, to give an update, I believe they just re, they are going through the second round of public comment um, with hope that we have the final regulations end of this year, early next year. Um, it, it was delayed. We're, we're, I think the first round of public comments happened either before, right before or during uh, COVID lockdown. So that kind of, you know, shut, shut down government, shut down movement a little bit. Um, and so they're picking it up again. And I'm really excited about uh, seeing that into fruition and uh, and seeing how that can benefit the uh, local growers up in up in Animal Triangle. And uh, do you want me to go? I can go into kind of a, a a little bit of detail of what the Appalachian program is, if you if you'd like. That'd be great. Yeah, we've written about it a bit in uh, in Canvas Business Times. Although uh, to your point right there, it has been a little while. Um, so if you could sort of set the stage for what that means, uh, that'd be great. Yeah, and so generally, uh, kind of in simple terms, the Appalachia program is uh, a, a program generate, uh, created by the California Department of Food and Agriculture, which uh, allows growers within California to submit, uh, submit proposals for uh, specific regions within within California that they grow that have distinct um, environmental and natural resources that, that uh, play a factor in the growing of cannabis within that region. And so it, if they, you know, the growers within that region submit the application, uh, if it's approved by the CDFA, 
then only growers within that region can market their their cannabis their products as being from that region similar to wine and so that will give a marketing um boost to these growers as consumers get more educated on uh on which appalachia which terroir of cannabis that they prefer again i it's going to be a boost a marketing boost for these local growers but i also do feel like we uh, the consumer education is going to be a huge part on in, in that boost as well. Yeah. You know, whenever I, I get into conversations about this, I always tend to get a little ahead of myself and begin to imagine a, a day under a, a federally legalized cannabis regime of some sort, whatever that ends up looking like that may or may not include interstate sales. And I, you know, like I said, this is um, going a little too far down the road, but I'm curious if, if that sort of long game is a factor for smaller growers who might see an opportunity that may or may not materialize in the U.S., where uh, folks outside of California might be able to connect with those Appalachians. So I don't know if that's even a question at all, but um, does that long play figure into some of uh, smaller growers' um, business strategies at this point? Um, I don't know if it focuses on their business strategy, uh, per se, you know, given the, uh, the time, the unknown timeline of it. Um, but I do know that they are keeping a watch on the program with that interstate commerce in mind of them being able to, if, you know, being able to market this specific Appalachia to, you know, uh, to Maine, New Hampshire, uh, you know, Florida, it, all the above, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be, it give me a huge uh, benefit to them, you know, get building out the infrastructure is going to be a little bit difficult because uh, they'd have to, you know, distribution and all that stuff, uh, which is proven to be uh, difficult for the small growers. But if they can figure out if they can nail down the distribution chain uh, early, then I believe it would be a huge benefit. And they also are, they're ecstatic for it. They, can, they can't wait to, to open up interstate commerce, um, you know, because everyone, that's the problem with California is there's so much good, good bud in California, you know, uh, it's, it's makes it, it's a, a lot, it's very difficult to get that edge, but if you're competing with Michigan buds, then, you know, California, Michigan or California, New Hampshire, uh, you know, not saying I haven't tried any Michigan bud, but, uh, just the marketing appeal alone, I believe, uh, you know, plays out by itself. Well, it'll certainly be an interesting day and, uh, it's, it's very exciting to sort of watch the progress uh, slowly and incrementally march in that direction. Um, but, but more immediately, you know, of course, here we are, we're talking right after the election. This is uh, in September. Um, we're heading into harvest season here. Uh, you mentioned distribution and, and some of the challenges. So I'm just sort of curious if you could maybe paint a picture of, of Mendocino right now. Um, I know you've talked to some, well, many small growers, but certainly a, a handful on your podcast recently. What are some of the, the more immediate challenges that, that arise this time of year, whether that is simply getting into dispensaries or making sure that they can get through an unpredictable set of weather patterns in the fall in California? Uh, I know that's those are two very different things, but, you know, in, in mid-September in Mendocino, what are some of the, the big issues of the day, so to speak? Yeah, you know, uh, the fire, fire uh, scares are always... Uh, at play when it's been so dry and they had such a dry winter last year, followed by 
a hot a hot summer so that that plays a factor um and right now we're seeing uh prices right now are are really uh really low and so that's playing that's worrisome as well because we haven't even uh it's not even harvest yet and so once the flood of the new harvest comes in what are those prices going to look like and uh you know that's that's a huge concern uh right now um and and i think that plays into what we discussed before is access to retail limit you know uh the, having these gatekeeper companies uh not put them on the shelves uh, unless they can get them for you know 200 to 500 a pound which is not sustainable at all uh for for the small grower um because they're already working on small margins in the first place because you're looking at uh 150 i think it's 150 or so a pound at just tax so if you're if you're only getting 200 what are you getting so you're getting 50 bucks a, a pound uh it costs way more than that to uh to grow it if you look at, if you go to a, a dispensary at least the ones that i've gone into the city i haven't seen a significant decrease in prices for for an eighth you know and so and so you're still paying minimum 35 bucks for an eighth at a dispensary and but the, but the you know they're they're paying 200 to 500 bucks for the flour a pound how i see it is that the that the limited number of retailers is, they're able to gatekeep uh the product and i don't think it's necessarily i've heard uh i've heard people say that oh you just make good product and and it sells itself i've seen fantastic product from these small growers some of the best i've seen in the state and they're they <laughs> they're getting offered like 500 a pound for their for this tr amazing outdoor product just because it's outdoor uh and so i don't think in, in california it's necessarily true that product speaks for itself i think you have celebrity you have uh you know the the ownership of the distribution the retailer i know it's not all of not all retails are vertically integrated but there's enough where it's 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 uh shrinks the percentage of retailers available for small growers um and so yeah i think at, at the end of the day i think it all boils down to access and access for small growers into retailers i mean could you if 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 there were were dispensaries as uh, prevalent as liquor stores, you know, you would just like the growth of craft beers and everything that we've seen in the state. Yeah, I believe you'd see the growth of craft uh, cannabis, and I believe that's where we're going. That's where the market's going to head at some point, but only if they're able to reach the consumer. Right now, they can't it's very difficult for them to get their product in front of the consumer in addition to the marketing uh struggles uh because of, because of you know it's hard to compete with celebrity um so yeah that's uh so those are the kind of that's how i feel uh or that's what i see is going on in mendocino and the emerald triangle right now is uh you know the fires and big concern right now is the price yeah, and certainly, um, you know, those are a lot of a lot of factors that that are sort of influencing one another and sort of causing this uh, almost uh, momentum of, of further further tension for the growers. Um, you know, it makes me wonder, and I, I wanted to ask you about the 
the bridge from the illicit or traditional or legacy market into the licensed market, which is an ongoing conversation really in a lot of a lot of states, a lot of jurisdictions, particularly places like California with with its rich history and its um, you know wide open amount of licenses that, that could be available. Um, so you know, just in, in Mendocino or even in, in the Emerald Triangle region in general, um, what steps are being taken or could be taken to to make that bridge a little easier? Because I know the, the illicit market is robust still. And um, all these issues that small growers are facing seem, you know, from the outside looking in, I'm sure very overwhelming and very onerous and almost a thing that you wouldn't want to tangle with. Um, but are there, are there roads that are being paved to help make that leap for a lot of growers, you know, even a handful of years after Prop 64? So this is kind of uh, where I think there's two sides of thought. You know, there's, you know, the, the enforcement, we've seen California bust several large illicit grows, you know, billion and mil- I don't know billion, but millions of dollars of grows and uh, operations itself. So California has picked up the enforcement side of things uh, for the on the illicit market. But the, the market has been around for decades and it's built, it's built an infrastructure. It's the knowledge in California for the legacy and illicit market is, is massive and being able to break that down with just enforcement. Uh, I don't think that's, I don't think that's going to be possible. I don't think it's going to be, it's likely. Uh, I mean, there's places in, in Mendocino where the sheriffs don't even want to go. <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, I don't think the, I don't think the enforcement path is a correct path. They have picked it up, you know, they, they have been doing that. Um, I believe they're, uh, they're, they have proposed some sort of tax relief, um, but, you know, on a state level, but I feel like the tax really, it really needs to be lowered. There needs to be a cap on the local level. Um, and, I'm going to, I'm going to harp it. It seems like we've been talking we, every, every single topic we've gone back to this one, what's one thing, but I think it's huge. I think that access to consumers needs to be opened up a lot more. I think small, small growers uh, need, need to be able to f- go into, have access to the consumer market a lot easier. Uh, if we want to, if we want to kind of really have a fair market in California, because right now, you know, there's these oligarchic states that limited the number of total licenses that they had. Basically, gave them gave these these initial licensees uh, uh, a guaranteed market share. So essentially, here grow grow whatever people are going to buy it because they they have no other options to buy it. In California, it wasn't it wasn't like that. It's more it's it is more competitive, um, but there's been massive amounts of consolidation at the retail le- at the retail level and as I, as I mentioned before, the, the lot of cities and counties haven't allowed retail in their, in their localities. And so if by opening it up, uh, you know, I believe that is an avenue of competitiveness that we or that isn't open in California and that should be increased a lot more. And I think that would, because a lot of these illicit markets are illicit, you know, sellers, dealers, they can go, they can sell whoever they want. They have access to whoever they want. Uh, they can 
they can go to any city, any county and sell, sell whoever. Um, in addition to the taxes, you know, obviously. So I think lowering the taxes, putting a cap on local taxes. Uh, and I think by if the state offers to provide funding to these local cities and counties to implement these programs, then because the state, I get it. I, I get that the local governments want to basically, pay have the people pay for the own pay for the program essentially and so that's where these taxes come from so if you remove that hurdle for the st local governments and say this if the state says hey we're going to pay for these programs for you then they don't have that they won't feel the need or have that excuse of to tax these cannabis companies and so i think the state government needs to kind of take more of a lead in in uh fostering this industry um, through the tax and through opening it, everything up. And I think that'll, I think that'll alleviate a lot, a lot of issues right now. You know, there's going to be more issues down the road, but we're, we're, we're we got to correct this one at, at, at the beginning. Um, and I think access taxes, you know, I think that'll help the legal market compete with the illicit market. Yeah, well, certainly coming off a uh, or coming off the political drama of a recall, uh, it'll be interesting to see how how this unfolds over the next few months and, and, and year plus. Um, but Jared, I wanted to sort of wrap uh, by just turning back to the California Cannabis Report a little bit. Just um, you know, I, was, I always like sort of ending with a, a question that looks ahead. Uh, so I just was curious of um, what you're hoping to continue doing with the podcast and what you're eager to learn along the way. Yeah, uh, thank you. And so, what I'm what I'm looking uh, for in the future is to continue to introduce people to the the small Emerald Triangle farmers. Every single farmer I've I've met has been great personality, and they've been doing it for. This is their heart and soul that they're putting into this plant, and it shows with the product. So, I want to introduce people to the farmers to their product. And maybe and give you know maybe uh, give an incentive to people to try out these different products and try the difference between the indoor and the outdoor you know I, so I'm just because I've mentioned part of the consumer education is going to be huge with the Appalachia program in, in conjunction with the Appalachia program because I think right now consumers are looking for just high THC for the lowest price. In my personal opinion. I don't think that's the best way to purchase cannabis. I don't think you will get the best cannabis just based off of high THC percentages. Um, I will also say for all the consumers listening, the proposed cannabis regulations, there can be a 10% difference between the, the TH, total THC level in the, in the label and the, uh, the final testing results. So don't, <laughs> it could be different. So uh, just, understand that. And uh, so I'm excited to, you know, share their stories through the, through the, through the podcast and introduce people to them. Uh, and what I'm excited to learn is to learn their stories even more, Look, meet people that I haven't met before, uh, intertwine myself more heavily into uh, the growers up there. Uh, and, you know, hopefully they've been very accepting and hopefully, you know, I can, be accepted as you know one of them up there uh so i'm trying to i'm trying to just learn from learn from them learn their stories and share that with everyone uh, i'm just trying to be a, a basically a, a 
an in-between guy of, of sharing people's stories. Uh, and so I'm excited to do that. I'm also going to start doing a little bit of, uh, you know, recapping of, of California, you know, uh, the cannabis news and, and insights and, uh, and whatnot to keep everyone uh, informed of what's happening in California. Fantastic. Well, we're eager to follow along here and it's certainly great to make a, a podcast connection here. Uh, so Jared, thanks so much for, for joining today. It's, it's been great talking to you. Likewise. And thank you for having me. And that's a wrap on another episode of Beyond the Show. That's episode 14, folks. We're on a roll at this point. And of course, the Cannabis Conference is receding in the rear view, but we will be having some staffers on the show very shortly to just sort of talk about the show, talk about the trends that we explored at the conference a couple weeks back in Las Vegas, and uh, sort of set the tone for the lasting impact of Cannabis Conference 2021 as we head deeper into the fall and deeper into the winter. You know, if you go to CannabisConference.com right now, uh, we're sort of in hibernation mode. We will be planning the 2022 show very shortly. A lot of information coming soon, but you will see the save the date graphic. That's August 23rd to the 25th, 2022. Same place, Paris, Las Vegas, next August. So put that on your calendar, get ready, sign up for email alerts because we will be sending out information in the very near future, just as we get the ball rolling on some 2022 planning. Other than that, do want to note real quick, the September issue of Cannabis Business Times is now out. Uh, it'll be hitting mailboxes very soon. If you don't have a subscription, check out CannabisBusinessTimes.com and sign up for one because they're free. On the cover, we've got a story about Grown Rogue's expansion into Michigan. Grown Rogue channels 15 years of industry experience in Oregon as it grows its Michigan footprint and establishes itself as a multi-state operator. That one is by senior editor Zach Mentz. So make sure to check it out on the website, or like I said, make sure you've got that print magazine coming to your mailbox each month. In the meantime, really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jerry Schwass. Great episode. We've got more to come in the coming weeks, of course, so stay tuned, and together we will be going well beyond the show. <laughs>